and welcome to the To Mom podcast. My name is Valerie Propsfeld. I encourage mothers to live their verb while also practicing self-grace. I am the proud mother of three children. The goal of my podcast is to encourage love as an action and live life more authentically. I do not pretend like I have all the answers because I don't, but what I am passionate about is love and living my verb the best way I know how. All I know is when I act in love, I feel better, my family feels better, and it creates a ripple effect. My aim is to educate not only others, but myself. I always welcome ideas, mom accountability, and friends. Please do not hesitate to reach out to me, and thank you so much for tuning in. Sometimes my role as a mother, I feel insignificant. However, when I look at the bigger picture, I am privileged to be a mom, and I feel like if I look out, I see that I am raising and guiding three beautiful humans who will then have kids, and their kids will have kids, and that will continue to multiply. For example, if you think about it, just five generations from now, or about 150 years, give or take, you will have approximately 30 descendants. In six generations, or about 180 years, 62 descendants. And seven generations, or 210 years, 126 descendants. And the number just keeps getting larger and larger. So we are more powerful to the course of history than we know. And motherhood, in my opinion, is the most important job in the world. What I believe will ultimately advance our species is living life intentionally in love. The world needs more of it. Love and kindness is not a weakness, but a strength. I talk a lot in my writing and in my podcast about anger, frustration, and fear because they compete for love's attention and living life as our verb calls us to do. Now, unfortunately, our brains are wired to get angry, to have anxiety, and to sometimes kind of feel like you want to freeze up and do nothing. Um, and that is a normal stress response. It's actually called the fight, flight, or freeze response, and uh, otherwise known as the sympathetic nervous system. Um, what I talk about a lot are uh, two structures in the brain. There is the amygdala, which is deep in, the, um, deep in your skull, and it is um, part of the brain that humans have and most other animals have. There's also a structure in the brain called the prefrontal cortex. It's right essentially like behind our foreheads, and it is the most evolved part of the brain. Most animals do not have this. It's really like a human thing. Some other primates do, but not as evolved as humans. Um, now, the amygdala and prefrontal cortex will talk back and forth to each other normally. Sometimes in um, situations they don't, and we will talk some more about that later. But um, in essence, when my amygdala is triggered, I respond in either fear or in fight, or I wanna freeze up. Um, and my heart rate will increase, my respirations, my breathing will increase, my pupils will dilate, my body will prepare to do those things. Okay, um, 
My prefrontal cortex, on the other hand, that more evolved part of my brain, can decipher if the alarm is real or false. So I sometimes like to think of that as a tornado siren. So it will sound the same. Like, uh, in other words, our body feels the same um, with an alarm. Like our heart rate increases, we get frustrated, we can only hyper-focus on whatever it is that's frustrating us in the moment. Um, but it may or may not be a real alarm. Another example I have is when I was picking uh, my son up from school a couple months ago, a bee joined us in the car and I was trying to drive the car, but it was so hard to drive the car because the bee kept buzzing around in the car and my amygdala was saying, this is a problem. There is a predator, it can sting you and you need to get this out of the car. You have to avoid being stung. But my prefrontal cortex was saying, the bee is not the problem, it's not gonna sting you. What you have to focus on is driving this car so you don't get into an accident. Um, but the amygdala being around for so much longer and for survival purposes has much stronger pathways. Um, I like to call those highways and it will override the prefrontal cortex if it needs to. And I really could not focus on driving 100%. So I had to pull the car over and get that bee out of the car. Um, and what I talk about a lot is that what I try to practice is focusing on back roads in my brain. So I know that I can't always um, be doing things 100% um, of the time the way I want to be uh, feeling or being cheerful all the time. But what I can do is practice those back roads. Um, I can understand that maybe this is amygdala response and I'm gonna try a different approach. I'm gonna use my prefrontal cortex and think about what can I do in this moment. Okay, um, so another thing that I just wanted to touch base on real quick with that uh, topic is neuroplasticity. It's actually something that's really been um, uh, an important, essentially discovery over the last, 50 or 100 years or so that before we would say adults uh, essentially can't learn um, new things. It's just a, a child thing, adults can't learn. But now we know um, recently over the past few decades that it, adults can in fact learn. We can learn a lot. It just takes more effort, but um, it is not impossible. So I like to keep that in mind as I go about my day and work on things. I remember when my baby was born, the hospital kept calling me mom. Mom, do you need something? Mom, do you understand this? Uh, mom, can you hold your baby while we do something? It felt like overnight my name was removed and changed to mom. I was no longer Valerie, I was mom. Which at first, that, was, that novelty was amazing. Like I, I'm a mom now. I dreamed of this name for so many years and now it's finally here. The nameless that I made when I was younger, I can use them now. The fields that we would hold in hand in hand together and dance through the sunset while blowing dandelions in the sky and twirling dresses, it was going to be amazing. Now fast forward that to sleepless nights, throw up, incessant worrying, and a whole lot of not listening. The title mom loses a bit of its glamour. 
No one seems to appreciate what I do, and I'm constantly conflicted with career and family demands. Surrounded by so much noise and a ridiculous mess, sometimes I kind of just wanna to go to a hotel room for myself for the night for some silence. But however, when I finally do go to a hotel room for silence, then I miss my kids. So I just can't win, I guess. Now, don't get me wrong. I am so grateful to be a mom. It is hard work though, and we are entirely too hard on ourselves. The love we show to our children, I believe should also be given to ourselves. In other words, our inner child, which I write about and talk about. Um, and I think that reminding myself to allow my inner child to come out and play or to play with my kids is so very important for um, our happiness in life. Now, all of this is to say that it's easier said than done. Our kids are also experts at decoding us. It's actually the way they survive. It's the way uh, babies um, survive. They are helpless and they require um, their caregivers for everything. Um, and they have to understand essentially what, what their mom or their caregiver, are they smiling? Are they responding to us? Are they, are they mad? Um, all of those things. So actually when a baby is born, um, their eyesight is about um, the distance of a ruler, like 12 inches, which is just amazingly like a perfect distance between where you hold your baby normally and you look at them, which I think is just so amazing that you can, that's the distance. Um, so the baby can see you quite early. Um, and the back and forth between baby and mom enhances their brain development so much. As a mom, I understand this on a instinctual level. I know that if my baby needs me, I'm gonna go get them. Um, but um, I took an interesting class a few years ago with clinical professor of psychology at Cornell University, Dr. Kenneth Barish. And among all of his fascinating topics, Dr. Barish also helped me understand the term serve and return. According to the Center of the Developing Child at Harvard University, serve and return is the interaction between mother and child. Just like tennis, you hit the ball and the other player hits back. Similarly, when the, your baby cries, you respond. When your four-year-old smiles, you smile back. And when you talk to your nine-month-old about what's going on outside the window, they show interest. This is all that serve and return and really helps your child's brain grow. Our children are designed to analyze every detail of our serving and returning and every detail of our body language, our tone, our eye contact. Sometimes knowing that though stresses me out a little bit. It's a tall, just impossible order to be happy and smiling all the time, right? That's not reality. But again, like I was saying earlier, the brain is like a muscle. The more I use it, the stronger it gets. The more back roads I use, the more they will become highways in my brain. The more I smile, the more I will create the habit of smiling. The intentional softer tone I use, the more it will become a more habit, more of a habit with time. So that neuroplasticity, that growing of my brain cells together will create back roads that get stronger. I am not perfect, but neither is life. So when we do things that we don't necessarily want um, the outcome to be, we apologize, we talk about our feelings and move on all in the name of love. 
Andrew Huberman, a neuroscientist and professor at Stanford University, has a great podcast called The Huberman Lab. And he talks about when we leave this earth, what imprint will we make? Will we be remembered for our thoughts or for our actions? No one knows how I feel in my head. The, they only see my body language and my behavior or my tone or my eye contact. These are essentially two different paradigms. I know the whole picture of why I'm acting a certain way. However, everyone else, including my spouse and my children, just sees my response. Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, show a picture of an old and a young woman. It's actually the same picture. It's either you see an old woman or you see a young woman. And it's really kind of difficult to see both. Um, and that's kind of what um, he talks about with the paradigm shift is I may um, know why I'm acting a certain way. Uh, my children may think mom's acting a certain way, but what are we seeing? We may be seeing something the same. We may be seeing something different as our response. Harvard Business School states that fundamental attribution error um, refers to our propensity to chalk up someone else's behavior as part of their personality or character. So it's actually like a, a psychology phenomenon. Um, so if someone else is doing something, again, it's, it's their personality. That's, they, they are, there is some type of flaw why they did what they did. On the other hand, if we do that same action, we feel it is because of elements outside of our control. We give ourselves slack, but hold others more responsible for their behavior. I may be yelling because my kids did not listen to clean up their toys, and I said it about five times already, and no one was listening. So then, if I shout, all my kids then see is mom is acting crazy, but... In my mind, it's like, well, I did say it five times, but for them, they're practicing this fundamental attribution error. They're like, mom's acting crazy right now. But for me, I'm like, what the heck? I said it five times. And this can also be you know, just really in life in general. Like if I'm running for late and there's traffic, I can say, it wasn't my fault. You know, I, there was you know, a traffic jam or the alarm, something happened to my alarm. But if someone else that I'm meeting is running late, then I'll be like, why are they late? Like, do they not care about meeting or, or, or what's going on? Um, so that's what that phenomenon is. And um, that was really interesting that, you know, sometimes uh, I feel like it's practice you know, in, in our family and in the world. So um, when I found out I was pregnant, I treated it as a final exam. Every developmental milestone was a test on my competence. I studied how to be a mom so much when I was pregnant with my first child. I convinced myself that if I learned enough, I would get an A plus in the course of motherhood. I remember at one point being on a warm summer beach, the breeze invited me to live in the moment. However, I was in my head. The waves crashed against my feet and I walked in the sand, but the moment passed by unenjoyed. At the time, I could not quite figure out how to leave my head and live in the present. Before my babies were born, I researched how to be a mom again so much. However, once I became a mother, I realized my efforts were futile. I quickly learned just how much control I lacked. 
It forced me to revisit my past in ways that I did not want to remember. And after moments of complete chaos, frustration, anxiety, I learned that the mom I thought I would be was not the mom I actually was. In other words, I am an imperfect mom. But that's okay. I am an imperfect mom who loves. My children force me to hold a mirror to myself in ways I never knew were even there. They teach me just as much as I teach them. Professor of psychology at Stanford, Carol Dweck's powerful research has taught me about this concept called the growth mindset. Dweck also calls it the power of yet. Since becoming aware of this topic, I decided to remove the word failure part of, just remove it from my language. And I, I really feel like that should be done across the board. According to Dweck, we do not pass or fail, but are always learning. Again, we do not pass or fail, but we're always learning. This is liberating for me and empowering. I always learn. I'm always learning. My children are always learning. And I think that's a very profound mental shift. So Viktor Frankl, a psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, stated, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So how do I lengthen that space to show more love? In future podcasts, I will discuss um, the space, and I, I talk about it in my writing as well, um, how we can kind of um, lengthen that space, how we can use our back roads to do that, and strengthen our brain muscles. You know, some examples are practicing gratitude or compassion. Um, so stay tuned for, for that in future podcasts, as well as in my writing. So for the second half of my um, episode and my future episodes, I'm going to have two sections, the first half and then the second half. The second half, I just want to talk about some things that I like to do as a mom, some ideas that I have, and so just some fun things that we do to live in the moment, to live in the present, and just live. Um, and so the first one I wanted to talk about is the fact that I love to just find random adventures and do them. It's, I find it exciting. And so a few months ago, I stumbled upon an advertisement at the Field Museum of Chicago called Dozing with the Dinos. I thought that could go either way. It was either going to be a great idea or a terrible one. And thankfully, it turned out to be the former. Thank goodness. Um, I didn't get much sleep, though. Spoiler alert. Um, it became apparent at about 1230 in the, in the morning um, with just incessant whispers and footsteps um, that didn't seem to stop. Uh, it, it was a good opportunity at that point to lengthen my space. I could have gotten upset about the fact that I wasn't going to be getting sleep. But I decided, you know, I, I wanted to do this. I want to spend time. I brought my older daughter, um, my seven-year-old, and I wanted to spend time with her. So um, I'm like, I'm just going to embrace this and I'll catch up on sleep the next day. And it really was a cool experience. I totally recommend it. Uh, the novelty of it all allows both of our brains, my daughter and I, to remember this night clearer in the future. I actually talk about that 
um, in my writing and in future podcasts about how novelty really um, can help uh, your memory. Um, so I will remember probably for the rest of my life the eerie shadows that T-Rex makes on the walls in the middle of the night. It looks rather, rather creepy, um, but in a cool way though. And uh, also just the intricate architectural detail of the museum, it really is beautiful. And also, um, I was able to share an experience with my daughter of even driving into the city from the suburbs. Um, when you drive into downtown Chicago, there's just so many sparkling lights. And I remember as a child doing that, and it just was magical. And for her to see that magic was just awesome. I really enjoyed that. So, Some of the original items of the museum were from the Chicago's World's Fair in 1893, otherwise known as the World's Columbian Exposition, the same fair that brought us the Ferris wheel, which competed with the Eiffel Tower, um, introduced at the exposition in Paris a few years ago, um, as well as the first um, reciting of the Pledge of Allegiance, the Cream of Wheat, and as well as H.H. Uh, Holmes, that infamous serial killer. According to the Field Museum website, the items were originally housed in the Palace of Fine Arts and moved to its present location in 1920. Opening day of the museum was in May of 1921, a little over 100 years ago. In fact, the Field Museum website has a bunch of neat pictures of the move if you want to see images of Chicago in the 1920s. It's kind of cool. So most of society views history in the lens of the past 100 to 150 years, just like the opening day of the Field Museum or Chicago's World's Fair. However, nothing puts life into perspective more than sleeping in an exhibit called The Evolving Planet. We paid a few extra dollars to sleep up there because apparently it was the quieter space. I'm not sure if it actually was. Maybe it was. I think I went to sleep at about like 1 a.m. So maybe. I mean, I wasn't up all night. Um, Anyway, the exhibit made it feel, it made a century feel like, you know, less than a second. Um, in fact, in order to find a proper sleeping area of this exhibit, we had to walk through six mass extinctions. The dinosaurs were so much further away from the origin of the planet, and um, which made me later on Google search, like, how, how old all, or like in the time span of all of this, how does this compare? And if you Google it, uh, if you Google planet 24 hour clock, actually, you will find a lot of examples of this. Um, organisms with one cell, like bacteria, arrived at the planet at about four o'clock AM. So if you think about like the start of the planet at midnight, uh, bacteria or um, one cell organisms, 4 AM. But multicellular organisms did not start uh, occurring until 5.30 PM. That's a long time. And the dinosaurs didn't enter the picture until about 10.40 p.m. And people arrived just before midnight. So that was a little, you know, kind of crazy and mind-boggling to me as to, like, how significant we are in this world. Um, but also kind of cool at the same time. Um, my daughter and I settled in a little Cambrian Ordovician era. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, that era was about at nine o'clock p.m., so before the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs were way too rowdy. Uh, there were a lot of people sleeping in those dinosaurs, and so I went back to the 
we went back to the um, earlier part of life because apparently that's not as exciting as sleeping right next to a T-Rex. Um, so this era that we were sleeping in, we were kind of looking at some of the exhibits, um, which was pretty clean. It was kind of nice. Like I was setting out our blankets and our sleeping bags and I, it was, it was great. Like we just went right under this little section of, um, uh, a water exhibit because we learned that apparently most of Chicago, as well as a lot of the world was underwater at this time. And that reminded me of a fossil I found in my parents' yard in sixth grade. <coughs> Excuse me. I brought that fossil in when I was 12 into show and tell. And I said to the class, look at this. This is proof that, you know, in the Midwest, we lived underwater. And everyone looked at me like I had two heads. I think even the teacher was two. And I, I, I wasn't very cool back then. Spoiler alert. And uh, that didn't give me style points. I'm not gonna lie, but this exhibit, what it showed uh, me that I was in fact correct. We, we did live underwater and my fossil was an appropriate assumption. Actually, I did, um, uh, gosh, I don't know when it was, but like a few years ago, I um, had uh, asked the Yale Peabody Museum to um, see when they were from, because I always thought that fossil was cool. Um, and they did confirm that it was probably from this period. Um, so all of this to say that I was able to share this story with my daughter and um, storytelling is so, so valuable to humans. And she was so fascinated to hear about this fossil I found in my yard and I was able to present it in the class and I was brave to talk in front of the class, which she then did um, a couple months later, which, so it was cool. I, I we really enjoyed the experience. Um, so one other thing I wanted to mention um, which is a little bit more simple than spending the night in a museum, is right now it's the end of February, and it's a bit of mild winter here in Chicago, I'd say. There was snow yesterday, but today it's like in the 50s, which is pretty good for February um, up here. And, um, but, you know, with all that in mind, I'm thinking about my gardening, and I don't garden that much, but I have been trying to learn more, and I want to plant some seeds, so I... I brought the kids with me to the store. We got plants and little plastic greenhouses. And um, we had a project uh, yesterday morning. And it was actually really fun. The kids enjoyed it. We were able to live in the present while planting seeds and um, you know, talking about them. And we're gonna watch them grow. I'm not sure if they will grow, but we will see. I will keep you up to date on that. Um, so I actually thought that was interesting because we were reaping and sowing, essentially. So, like that, um, I, the famous saying, um, "What you, uh, um, what you reap is what you sow." Um, I, I thought was uh, we literally are reaping. Uh, is it reaping? I need to learn these terms. We were planting seeds, um, and we're going to watch them grow. And you know, I'm not sure if we actually will grow anything, but I do know that that activity and that quality time with my kids. I am glad that I did and um, am able for them, and they'll remember those times as well. Um, so tell me your thoughts about all this. It's essentially the end of this uh, episode. Um, so I, I wanna hear what your thoughts are, um, what kind of fun activities do you do with your kids? Um, how do you live in the present? And um, 
please email me with your thoughts um, or anything else and subscribe to my newsletter. And I am looking forward to talking to you again in my next episode. Thank you so much.